It's Monday, May the 31st, 2021. More than 1.8 billion vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loder, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens. Today, we're looking at vaccination strategies, how different ways to roll out vaccines might enhance protection against COVID-19. We'll also ask if children should be inoculated against the coronavirus. Hello, Natasha. How are you? I'm well, Alok. Thank you. I'm very pleased to tell you that we've just heard that Sanofi is entering phase three trials for its vaccine. And I don't know if you remember that it ran into development problems last year. Well, they have not given up and they're starting their trials now. And if all goes well, they should get an approval towards the end of this year. So new, some new vaccines on the horizon. Yes. That's exciting. Uh, Joining us this week is Slavea Chankova, the Economist healthcare correspondent. Slavea, it's really nice to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me back, Alok. Slavea, there's lots and lots of studies going on right now around strategies for vaccination, you know, looking at booster shots, finding the optimum gap between doses, all of that. Do you get the sense that vaccination policy is about to change um, as all this new research comes along? Oh, absolutely. It's already happened several times. So yeah, I expect that, you know, in the coming months, we'll probably see more changes. Well, next up, we're going to be hearing from a scientist who's leading one of the trials investigating vaccination strategies. Amid supply bottlenecks and safety concerns, a growing number of countries are looking to mix and match COVID-19 vaccines. That means giving a shot of, say, Oxford-AstraZeneca, followed by a dose of a different vaccine, perhaps Moderna, Pfizer or another approved jab. Mixing vaccines is nothing new. For decades, researchers have tried the approach to protect against viruses such as Ebola and HIV. Whether it's a safe and effective strategy for COVID-19 is now under active investigation. Some scientists suspect the mixed-dose method might even boost protection against the coronavirus. I'm Matthew Snape, and I'm an Associate Professor in Paediatrics and Vaccinology at the Oxford Vaccine Group at the University of Oxford. Professor Snape is the Chief Investigator of the Oxford Vaccine Group's ComCov trial, which is looking into the effects of mixing and matching COVID vaccines. The proven effectiveness of these vaccines come from giving the same vaccine for the first and second dose. So give Pfizer followed by Pfizer or AZ followed by AZ. Those schedules have been shown to work and that's where the proven effectiveness comes from. We started this study initially to give some flexibility and resilience to the immunisation schedule. So if there was a disruption in supply, for example, and you had hundreds of thousands or millions of people immunised with one vaccine and you could no longer get that vaccine, would it be okay to give a second dose of another vaccine? And it has become, with the concerns in Northern Europe and Germany, France and others about the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine in younger age groups, this has become a very real question. There are, in those countries, in the Scandinavian countries, in Canada, many, many people who have received a first dose of AstraZeneca 
And the recommendations there are that they shouldn't receive a, a second dose of that vaccine if they are under 60 years of age, for example. And so they are now adopting these schedules where they're getting first dose of AstraZeneca followed by a second dose of Pfizer. I mean, from an immunological point of view, it seems to make sense to have slightly different ways of challenging the immune system in order to build a sort of a wider repertoire of antibodies. That's right. And I mean, they're all ultimately looking at the same target protein here, the spike protein, but presenting that to the immune system in different ways is potentially a, a great way of actually generating a better and broader immune response. So as I say, this, our study started off looking at flexibility and resilience and adapting to change. But, you know, there is a lot of interest now as to whether we'll actually see a better immune response with a mixed schedule. And this could actually be, rather than just something you might do if circumstances demand it, that this might actually be a preferential approach to the issue of generating a good immune response, and especially one that might have broader cross-protection against multiple different variants of coronavirus. Okay, so tell me about your trial then. How have you designed it and uh, what are the questions you're asking? Well, we're running two studies, actually, but in both of them, we were taking people who received the first dose of AstraZeneca or of Pfizer and then chopping and changing things around. So in the first study, we randomised people at the first dose to get one of four schedules, AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca or AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and then Pfizer, 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 AstraZeneca, the four combinations. And we have got the blood tests for the first stage of that study available now, and they will be analysed over the coming days. We already know and have already published to show that actually the mixed schedules do generate more in the way of temporary side effects like chills, feverishness and headache than the standard schedules. And that's interesting. I think it's important information to have and maybe it just does give a bit of a suggestion that there might be a bit of a more of a kick to the immune system and so we may see a better immune response. And we have another study that's running that is looking at different vaccines, including the one produced by Moderna and also by Novavax, which is a protein-based vaccine. So that brings a different technology into the mix. And so those results will also be coming available through July, August. And all of this is really important information for the coming winter months when I expect there might be different variants of the coronavirus going around or increased infection rates. And I just wonder how data from trials like yours will help to feed into how the public health authorities define their strategies for those months. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a, a lot of attention being paid to that at the moment. This idea of mixing up the vaccines, if it were to show a better immune response, that might become really relevant when it comes to either those countries that are yet to give the second dose to large proportions or even when it comes to the third dose. And there's a study that's specifically looking at that called CovBoost, which is being run by Sol Faust at the University Hospitals of Southampton, which is looking at mixing and matching for the third dose. People who've had two doses of either the Pfizer or AstraZeneca vaccine are being enrolled to receive a randomised to a, actually seven different vaccines that they might receive for their third dose to look specifically at that. How can we use booster doses to really soup up the immune response and potentially get people through the next winter or even beyond and potentially provide protection across multiple new variants as they come along. Do you have any expectations for what the findings of that might be? We're already thinking about a third booster shot. It might be surprising to some people. But it's all, all about planning ahead in that you don't want to then have to be reacting without any data. So this deliberately is starting quite early so that we would have information by August or September that would inform us in the autumn months as to if we did choose a booster dose, you know, what might be the best combinations to use. And in particular, that study is almost aiming to look to see if there's any combinations you wouldn't want to use. 
It seems like a luxury to actually have information that you can prepare for this coronavirus with, given what we've been through in the last uh, 12 months. That's right. Well, it would be nice to be ahead of the curve for once, wouldn't it? Third shots of vaccines. Natasha, have you booked your third shot yet? No, I've not booked my third shot. You'd not be surprised to hear. Would it surprise you, though, uh, on a more serious note, if it does turn out that mixing and matching vaccines gives a stronger immune response? It wouldn't surprise me. I have a hunch it's going to work. And that's because the Spanish have been looking at this and they've done a little bit of work that suggests it might. They've been looking at giving second doses of Pfizer vaccines after the AstraZeneca vaccine. And these results are certainly not peer-reviewed. They've just been presented online, but they've looked at 600 people and they found that you get a really strong response when you give this second dose of the Pfizer vaccine after the AstraZeneca. Now, they know that the immune response looks stronger than with two AstraZeneca doses. So they're getting more antibodies for their money. But what we don't know yet is whether having one dose of each vaccine is better than having two doses of Pfizer. Slavea, Matthew mentioned there about how these trials that are ongoing now might be used to give information about strategy for the winter months and when different variants of the virus might be around. Do we know if, if mixing vaccines, having a third booster actually would help with new variants? We don't know yet. I mean, for now, the data that is coming out is looking at what sorts of antibodies and T-cell response people have who've been vaccinated with various combinations or doses of vaccines. So actual data to, to compare infection rates is not yet available. But I think everyone's guess is that the broader the immune response is, when you look at uh, what sorts of antibodies and, and T-cell responses you develop, the better it is when it comes to variants. Yeah. And, and Natasha, are there plans in place to roll out more booster shots? Yes, it's very much an open question in Britain and a number of other countries, um, particularly the US. But what we do know is that in the UAE, which has relied heavily on a Chinese vaccine from a firm called Sinopharm, they have started giving third doses to first responders, to the elderly, to those with underlying health conditions. And this is being read as a suggestion that immunity is waning. With all the vaccines that we're using more widely in the West, Pfizer has said they think a third shot will be needed within 12 months. J&J has also said the same. But the science is actually moving really rapidly. And the former CDC director, Tom Frieden, has said it's way too early to say that annual boosters are going to be needed for everyone. And remember that, you know, these pharma companies do have a financial incentive in giving annual shots. And ultimately, this is a public health decision. And that's going to depend on what we see in the blood of people who've had two doses. The correlates of protection. But back to that correlates of protection. Well, we are, and we're getting closer. And I've been sort of reading some quite interesting work that seems to suggest that the level of antibodies produced are a really good proxy for the level of protection that you're getting. This is by far from a settled question, something we should probably talk about. But that is sort of the way that people are leaning. Um, Slavea, how long does it normally take for data from the kinds of trials that Matthew is doing to feed into public policy? So far, we've seen that 
Here in the UK, it feeds very quickly into what's being done. And for some things also in other countries, but a lot depends on, on what sorts of vaccine supplies countries have. So policies are determined by some sort of combination of what these studies are showing and then what vaccines you have or you have coming from the suppliers. And that's partly why we see such wide, wide variation even within Europe, of what countries are doing in terms of mixing and matching vaccines or the space that they leave between first and second dose. But I do think that if one or another combination turns out to be particularly powerful, especially against several variants, eventually policies will converge on that. But it may not happen very quickly. Natasha, there was a study in the last few days that suggested that actually immunity to the coronavirus from people who've had the disease seems to last a while, maybe years. Well, this is fascinating, isn't it? So one of the problems with relying on antibody levels as a sort of prediction of whether you're immune to this virus is that they do wane and that's actually normal. And what happens is you've got lots of other parts of your immune system, the sort of dark matter of the immune system we don't look at as much, that gives you a sort of long-term immune memory. And it looks like this long-term immune memory is being activated. And we can't really characterise this well enough yet. So um, there's tantalising evidence that for some people, immunity could last a very long time particularly those people who have had a natural infection first, followed by a vaccination. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, take out a subscription. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejabpod. A story that I wrote for the most recent edition of The Economist is about ventilation. As vaccinations spread through many countries, people are starting to think about how to mix indoors again. And the latest research on the SARS-CoV-2 virus shows that it spreads mainly through the air. So if you're going to mix indoors, you need to think very hard about how to ventilate those spaces properly to keep them clean and safe. I'll be talking more about ventilation on our weekly science and technology podcast, Babbage. That's out tomorrow. Go to economist.com slash the jab pod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. In December 2020, the highly transmissible B117 variant of the coronavirus was spreading across Britain. With infections surging and vaccines in short supply, health officials made what was then a controversial decision to delay people's second jabs in order to get as many first doses into arms as possible. Pfizer and BioNTech had recommended that both doses of their vaccine be administered within three weeks, but UK residents would have to wait up to three months for a second dose. The policy made Britain a global outlier and was widely contested at the time. The UK is under fierce criticism over its plan to delay second doses of the Pfizer vaccine. The doctors' union, the BMA, called the gap of a maximum 12 weeks difficult to justify. But since then, studies have shown that a greater gap between doses can boost immunity and save more lives. Natasha, some countries have opted for a similar approach to Britain, but dosing is a topic that's still under some debate. And you've been interviewing someone who's argued in favour of increasing the gap between doses. Yeah, a little while ago, I had a conversation with Dr. Zeke Emanuel. He's the Vice Provost at the University of Pennsylvania, 
And he's also a special advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization. So Dr. Emmanuel has advocated quite strongly for delaying the second dose. And we talked about the rationale for the policy, as well as why it hasn't been more widely adopted. We should remember that the time periods between the first and second dose were not set by science. They were set by trying to uh, get these studies done rapidly. And so that may not be optimal from an immunological standpoint or a public health standpoint. So if it's such a good idea, why don't more countries do it this way? (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's it's a good question. And I think a lot of countries are hesitant because uh, they see what was done in the clinical trials and want to follow that. And uh, we don't have enough data on how, from a public health standpoint, a controlling the pandemic standpoint, the delayed dose happens. Basically, countries are being confronted with a choice in real time without a complement of the data. We do know that on the mRNA vaccines, if you get two vaccines, scenes separated by three or four weeks, you can get 90 plus percent high antibody response. And I think countries are comfortable with that. I do think from a public health perspective, and now we have uh, several modeling studies suggesting that actually spacing out the second dose to eight, 12 weeks from the first dose uh, can actually get you more protection when you're either beginning to come into a surge or during a surge. Do you think that view is more widely accepted now and that perhaps it's something that other countries might consider doing now? Well, I think you have uh, two, two perspectives. One is the sort of public health perspective and a lot of researchers and health policy people like myself who think, yes, spacing out the second dose is good from a public health standpoint. And then you have government officials who don't want to be criticized, want to fall back on well, we're following the way the trials were conducted, and I think it's a safer position. They have cover given the way the trials are conducted. I mean, would it be fair to say that it's not just government officials, that maybe it's also kind of individual doctors who take care of patients might feel that it's not the best thing for each individual patient as well? I know we've seen the doctors here oppose that strategy, and I would imagine the same would be true in the U.S., I do think you're right. Remember, a doctor's perspective is my patients first. Uh, But the pandemic is not primarily a health, personal health issue so much as a public health issue and getting our arms around uh, the immunization of the public to bring the number of cases, the number of deaths down is a public health issue. And so I do think that, as you correctly point out, sometimes there's a tension between the medical perspective, what's good for my individual patient, and the public health perspective, which is what's good for the community and the nation as a whole. Uh, We see this in many, many circumstances, right? From any individual standpoint, having everyone else get vaccinated and me not vaccinate gets us to herd immunity, protects me, and I don't take any of the risks of a vaccine. So from a personal standpoint, it's always better to be a free rider. But from a community standpoint, that's a very bad situation. And so I think, you know, the the correct perspective here is everyone's going to benefit if the community gets as many people vaccinated as possible and decreases the risk of spread.
Slavea, in your opinion, what would be a reason not to delay the second dose of a vaccine? If you see a wave starting, you know, the epidemic is becoming quite bad again in your country, and you have lots of people who've only had a first dose, especially uh, elderly or vulnerable people, you would want to give them maximum protection as soon as you can, if you have enough supplies, of course, because you know that even after three weeks, you get protection in the 90s, percentage-wise. In fact, we're seeing that happening here in England with the so-called Indian variant increasing across the country. The period between the first and the second jab is being shortened for some of the most vulnerable people. Can you lay out some of the immunological data that's coming out now about whether a longer interval actually improves the immune response or not? It definitely does, uh, at least for the AstraZeneca and for the Pfizer-BioNTech jabs. We do have data now from both epidemiological studies and studies that track the antibody and T-cell response. So recently, for example, data came out on the spacing of the Pfizer jabs and people who had it spaced for longer, uh, about 12 weeks, I believe, had three times higher level of antibodies. They had a somewhat lower T-cell response, but in the long term, the T-cell response was roughly kind of settled at around the same level for the two dosing schedules. So as Natasha said earlier, it does seem like higher antibodies is better protection. So we do have quite a good evidence now that spacing is a good idea if you can afford to wait. And I think I'd just add, actually, that some of that evidence has come in since I spoke to Dr. Manuel. So if I had spoken to him, perhaps yesterday he would say that the immunology supports the case for spacing doses much more than it did when we had done the recording. Actually, Natasha, Dr. Manuel, in your conversation, said that um, there's a tension between sort of personal and public health when it comes to you know vaccination strategy. But obviously for public health, it seems the evidence suggests that spacing out doses is a good idea. Do you think that more countries are going to start adopting that approach? Not unless they have to, because they're comfortable with what they've got. This is what Dr. Emmanuel has said. But we have seen some countries be flexible. So the European Union said there could be a 42-day gap, and India said there could be a gap of 8 to 10 weeks. So when there is a shortage of supply, we are seeing countries taking a little bit of more of a flexible approach. But then, you know, the irony is, isn't it, that we have pioneered this extended dosing in Britain. And then when the Indian variant came along, we've said, oh, let's speed things up. And that's because we have the supply of vaccines. Yeah, I was going to ask you just a bit more about that, because uh, the, the UK has has reduced the gap between its doses because of the new variants coming along. But in India, they've decided not to. Well, it's about stretching out the supply you have. You know, no matter where you are in the world, if you have a limited supply of vaccines and you have an actively spreading virus, you may decide that it makes good sense to give your two doses to two different people rather than two doses to one person. And it seems to me that given the concerns about the Indian variant and whether the vaccines are as effective in Britain, they have had the ability to say, OK, we'll accelerate uh, the vaccination because at the moment we're giving doses to 30 and 40-year-olds and actually maybe it makes more sense to accelerate a bit the vaccines we're giving to the over 50s. But in India, for example, they've actually increase the gap between the doses. Um, is that just down to logistics and supply then? 
Yeah, it'll be because they have limited supplies of vaccine and they want to be able to get them out to as many people as possible. On the 10th of May, American regulators cleared the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for use in children aged 12 to 15. This is one more giant step on our fight against the pandemic, and I encourage their parents to make sure they get the shot. President Joe Biden hailed the jab's authorization as kids across America began rolling up their sleeves. So the past year has been kind of, it hasn't been great. I think I'm a very social guy and not being able to see my friends has been rough. 12-year-old Leo from Dobbs Ferry, New York, was given his first dose on May the 17th. It didn't really hurt. It hurt for a couple seconds. There was a little bit of a stinging, and then it didn't hurt for the next 20, 30 minutes. I'd say an hour. And then uh, my arm started to get sore. But aside from that, not really. I was a little tired maybe, but that's pretty normal. He's hoping being vaccinated will help him return to something like a normal life. I haven't been fully vaccinated yet, but I'm very excited once I am to hang out with friends. I've been hanging out with my friends outside, but I'm excited to be able to do it inside and watch movies in the theaters with them, play video games inside with them. Jacqueline, who's 15 years old, has already received both doses. Before I got vaccinated, I was very scared of needles, Um, but I wanted to feel more protected and help others around me not get sick, so I decided to get it. That choice was supported by her mum, Caroline. It was a very easy decision for me to get Jacqueline vaccinated, both to protect her health and make sure she could get back to normalcy as soon as possible and feel confident in going out. Millions of adolescents in America have already been vaccinated. And COVID czar Dr Anthony Fauci says the rollout is set to keep expanding. By the end of this calendar year, It's likely that we'll have enough information to vaccinate children of any age. Right now, we have the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that is authorized for adolescents 12 and older here. Initially, this vaccine was authorized for those 16 and older. And because of the excellent data on safety and efficacy, this emergency use authorization has been extended down to 12-year-olds and above. Lena Wen is a public health professor at George Washington University and a contributing columnist for The Washington Post. There have been a lot of very excited adolescents who have received already their first dose of the vaccine. Actually, nearly a quarter of the initial vaccination right after the eligibility criteria opened up, a quarter of all the vaccines in the U.S. were in adolescents in this age range because there was such high pent-up demand. What is the thinking behind offering vaccines to children? Is it to protect them from COVID-19 or or is there a sort of larger policy objective of trying to lower infection rates across the states? Well, no doubt it's both. 
we do know that in order to reach herd immunity or anything approaching herd immunity to try to decrease the level of infection in the U.S. and around the world, that we have to vaccinate as many people as possible. And we're already seeing in the U.S. that we have dramatically declining rates of new infections, hospitalizations, and deaths because the vaccination rate has been climbing so much. And so having teens now be included is really important. I mean, we're talking about nearly 17 million people in this 12 to 15-year-old category who are now able to be eligible. So that will make a big difference when it comes to the population. But it is also to protect individuals as well. In the U.S., we have, as of last count by the American Academy of Pediatrics, we have 3.9 million children under the age of 18 who have been diagnosed with COVID-19. More than 10,000 have been hospitalized. More than 3,000 have had this multi-system inflammatory syndrome that involves inflammation of their heart and nervous system and many other organs. And more than 300 children have died. I will tell you, as a parent of two young kids, ages one and three and a half, I am very eager for my kids to get vaccinated. Right now, they're not vaccinated because the eligibility does not extend to their range. Now, one thing I have noticed across the world is that children, even if they get the virus, seem to be less affected. I'm not saying they're not affected at all, but seem to be less affected. So should they really be a priority group in terms of the campaign for vaccination? Look, I think there have been a number of people who have said, well, why are we vaccinating children in the U.S., let's say, when there are so many people around the world, healthcare workers, vulnerable individuals who have not had the vaccine? And I, to me, this is a false choice. I think we should be doing both. We should be vaccinating children where we can. We should also be doing everything possible to ramp up capacity, manufacturing facilities, and the ability to get vaccines to the world. Both of these things should be priorities. And in the case of the U.S., being able to vaccinate children also allows us to get our economy back a lot sooner. Parents have been anxious about getting their kids back in school. Many women in particular have left the workforce in order to care for their kids. Children have lost, in some cases, more than a year of in-person instruction. We need to get kids back in school. We need to get parents back to work. And I think it will make a difference when kids are able to be vaccinated. Can you lay out for me if there are any ethical or safety concerns that um, remain unanswered when it comes to vaccinating children? Well, when it comes to younger children, we just don't have those data yet. We have data for 12-year-olds and above, certainly for the Pfizer vaccine. The Moderna vaccine is about to undergo this authorization, and so we'll be able to see those full data as well. There is a question that some people might raise of, well, look, we don't know the long-term consequences of these vaccines. And I think it's a fair point that we need to acknowledge. But that said, we have experience with many other vaccines, childhood immunizations, and we know that the side effects and the adverse reactions, if they're going to come up, will be seen within the first six weeks. There is no example of something where there are long-term effects that pop up years from now. Can we prove a negative and exclude that hypothetical? No, but I think we really need to weigh any possible theoretical risk against the very real risk of coronavirus and the impacts, including in our children. And so I think that it's important for these questions and concerns to be raised, but I also think it's important to counter them with science and evidence. Natasha, what do you think is the main reason for inoculating children against COVID? 
Well, I think the main reason that people want to inoculate children is a public health reason. You know, it's a great thing to vaccinate children. And I think we should probably think about doing it in the longer term. But I'm not sure it's a priority right now, unless you're in a vulnerable group. There are some children that absolutely do need to be vaccinated. But Natasha, well, what about what we heard there from the children we spoke to? You know, having vaccinations allows them to go back to some form of normal life. It allows them to go safely back into schools. It gives parents a bit more confidence and feeling of safety for their children. These aren't things that we should ignore. I think you'll find across Europe, the children haven't been vaccinated and they've been sent back to school and everyone's very happy. I think what the issue is in America is a lot of children have been kept home for a long time and there's a degree of nervousness about sending them back. But if you look at the experience of other countries, actually children have done very well. Slavea, from a public health point of view, I think that the crux of this is should children anywhere be vaccinated before the world's most vulnerable. Where do you sort of fall down on that question? I don't think it's ethical, actually, because children get very sick from COVID extremely rarely. And those who have died, many of them have had pre-existing medical conditions. So you could vaccinate only those children if you want to prevent a large chunk of those unfortunate deaths. But in many countries around the world, even healthcare workers are not yet vaccinated because of vaccine shortage. I mean, the desire to do both is admirable, but it's not realistic. When rich countries hold on to vaccine to vaccinate their children, they're not going to have a surplus and they're not going to be able to export it or donate it. And that's just the way things are. The European Medicines Agency, of course, has just given approval for the Pfizer jab to be given to teenagers. So do you think we're going to see many other countries starting to give vaccinations to teenagers? Well, sure. I'm sure that vaccination for children will roll out in many countries and there will be quite a bit of desire to have it done. I would just say that there's still data coming in on something called myocarditis and it's a heart inflammation condition that is quite rare but is cropping up in children. Um, We still don't know if it's really connected to this vaccine and it's certainly very treatable, but that's certainly a reason you might want to sort of wait and sort of gather a bit more data about that. I, I know as a parent myself, I want to see much more data about that. And, you know, there's something else I just wanted to raise, actually, is that as a parent, when you make a decision to vaccinate your child, you're weighing up the risks and the benefits. And you want to be sure that they're getting huge benefits for this. When I get my vaccination, I can take into account things like public health and something like I want to protect other people. But when I'm making that decision for my child, I take a much more sort of purist approach. And so I do think that you're going to find that we're not going to vaccinate children as enthusiastically as we do with adults. I think you're already seeing that in Israel. I was reading a piece in the Jerusalem Post that was saying only 49% of Israeli parents are going to jab their teenagers. I I don't know. I, I come down on that issue slightly differently, I would say. I want my children to be vaccinated as soon as possible within, you know, supply constraints and everything. Just because there's the other public health argument, which is that the more unvaccinated people there are, the more chances that even not very serious infections can possibly produce new variants. There's just a pool of unvaccinated people out there. I mean, I appreciate the arguments about supply and making sure that rich countries donate to poor. But I think if you've got the vaccines there in your city and there are children to be vaccinated, then I think it makes 
quite a lot of sense. And and of course, children, they're the part of the uh, population that get most of vaccines because of childhood immunizations and stuff. Uh, Slovenia, it's interesting, isn't it, that the COVID vaccination program has been obviously targeted at adults, but most vaccines are for kids, aren't they? Yes, that's right. In fact, many, if not most, of the scientists who are leading those trials are pediatricians. And this is probably why it's difficult for some countries actually to vaccinate people quickly now, because vaccination programs for children run every year. Whereas with adults, it's a whole different world. We've never had anything like this before. So, so countries are doing something that they've never done before, or at least not since the smallpox campaign, I would guess, just vaccinating all adults all of a sudden everywhere. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's probably why, particularly in developing countries, it will be much harder to organize these mass vaccination events for adults. Well, thank you both, Natasha and Slavea, for that. It's really interesting that basically after almost six months of the world vaccinating, we're starting to understand much, much more about what's going to work and what isn't. And it feels like we've been talking about this for years when it's only been a few months. And uh, th this is why there's so much actual active debate about all this. And the vaccination strategies in a couple of years will look very different to what they do now. And it's, I think it's very interesting to just be going through in the middle of all this data. Um, now, before we go, are there any stories that jumped out at you both this week that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, this isn't actually that new, but it's new to me. It was of the oldest woman in Europe who's 116 years old and she's overcome COVID. Um, so I thought, yes, I thought this is great. And uh, she lives in Toulon in France and uh, she was fully recovered uh, wow. just before her 117th birthday. Oh my goodness. So there you go. Someone needs to, I mean, care, very carefully understand what's going on in her bloodstream because she's clearly some sort of super person. Uh, Slavea, Natasha, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you, Alok. That's all from us. The show's producer is Hannah Mourinho. The sound designers are Nico Rofast and Carla Patella. And the editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radioeconomist.com. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more on the jab next week when we'll be talking about travel. How safe is it to get on a plane? And to what extent can vaccinations give tourism a boost? 